to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. My name is Lindsay Childs-Keen, a clinical associate professor with the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. And today we will be chatting with Amy Seip, a clinical pharmacy specialist for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, about her practice journey to academic detailer for the Kansas City and Harry S. Truman VA Medical Centers, as well as Melissa Christopher, who is the national director for the academic detailing service for VACO Pharmacy Benefits Management. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Lindsay. So to start off with, tell us a little bit about yourself and your current position. And I guess we'll start with Melissa. Well, thanks, Lindsay, so much for having me here. It's an honor to speak on your podcast with ASHP. And I guess I can start off by just saying I live in San Diego with my husband, Matt, and two kids, Emily and Luke, who helped me stay pretty grounded outside of work. Um, I spent a lot of my free time uh, in the local area trying to hike and um, with my church. Uh, I love to cook and I love just being um, a part of, I've been doing keto. I don't know if anybody's into keto, but I'm into keto right now. So I, I'm, I'm looking at every cookbook I can find on that because I'm on my weight loss journey this year since COVID started. Um, and so I've been busy as a, just going to water polo games, doing things like that. But in my journey with my career, it's been awesome working for the VA. I'm just so blessed to be part of the Veterans Health uh, Administration, and I've been a pharmacist for them for over 20 years. I got started um, being a, a clinical pharmacist practitioner, doing med management and formulary management at my local facility in San Diego, and I um, really enjoyed that. I was working in an endocrine clinic, so I loved doing diabetes work, and uh then I was able to, to get started this program in academic detailing for the VA in 2010, uh, just to pilot it in an area um, in the Western half of the country where we were really focused on mental health improvement. And, you know, the VA has been doing mental health care for a very long time, and we're one of the leaders in this area of pharmacy practice. And it's really exciting to be able to advance that. Um, and over the 10 years that we've been working in the field of academic detailing, that was really designed to implement evidence-based practices. So we got started in mental health as a focused area of how to get the right data in the hands of our clinicians. Um, and 10 years later now, we've trained over 500 pharmacists in this um, implementation approach for evidence-based practices. So we've done over 100,000 outreach visits to clinicians across the healthcare system. And we've reached more than 35,000 clinicians on 25 national campaigns. So it's really exciting to be a part of this community that really wants to improve quality of care for our veterans. Um, and it's kind of a different job for a pharmacist. So I'm excited that we get to share a little bit about it today. Awesome. Amy, tell us a little bit about you. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for having me today. Um, I'm Amy Seip. I live in Lee Summit, Missouri, which is a suburb of Kansas City. And I live there with my husband, Chris, and our son, Mason, who will be attending Northwest Missouri State University in the fall. He's going to major in cybersecurity. He's going to take after his dad a little bit there. 
During the pandemic, my husband and I resuscitated our golf game. So we're looking forward to continuing to play golf through the coming months. And especially as I send our child off to college, um, I'm hoping that's a good distraction for this mom. So uh, I worked as a clinical pharmacist for the Kansas City VA for the past 15 years. I started out in central inpatient and also investigational drugs. And then I moved on to seizure clinic. And then finally, in the last 10 years, I spent as a clinical pharmacy practitioner in our anticoagulation clinic service. I transitioned my role to Vision uh, 15 academic detailer in December of 2019. I attended our basic skills training in January in Boston. And about that time, we started getting things kind of figured out, and I started setting up appointments with my prescribers to do some outreach. Uh, the pandemic hit. And so we've been doing our uh, performing our role virtually for the past 18 months. Uh, we have four academic detailers in Vision 15. I cover two facilities. I cover the Kansas City VA in Kansas City, and then, as you mentioned, the Harry S. Truman VA in Columbia, Missouri, as well as all of their affiliated community-based outreach clinics, and we call those CBOCs. Well, I am somewhat familiar with the alphabet soup of the VA because I am a former VA pharmacist, but when I was with the VA, we didn't have any academic detailers, so I'm really excited to learn more about your roles. So, Melissa, when someone asks you, what is academic detailing, how do you describe this work? Well, you know, it's so much more than when we think about drug reps who come in and see our docs and try to give them information about the latest drug that they're promoting. It's really looking at a process improvement approach within a healthcare system. So you think about, you know, high reliability organizations and it, fundamentally what we need is to have a way to translate the latest research into practice. And so with the model that we have in using that approach of personalized discussions with providers that for many decades drug reps have done to tell people about new innovations that are coming out. The difference is, is we're really looking at developing that in a way that it's a more balanced technique. So you're bringing evidence-based information using a one-on-one -on -one social marketing technique and you're providing a very service-oriented outreach for that healthcare professional. And the idea is that you're really working together to say, okay, who is in your current patient population that could benefit from this information? And how do we implement that in your practice? And so, you know, it's very different from like the traditional things we're taught in pharmacy school with the PowerPoint presentations and very formal lectures and didactic approaches. Um, I think there's a role for that, but this is really hands-on work. This is about taking what a provider already knows and, and advancing from there. So you're doing knowledge assessments. You're asking them how things are going in their practice. Where are they feeling stuck when they have complicated patients? And helping to apply that evidence in the practice setting and using data to really drive that. So that's why VA has such a robust program, because we're really looking at real-time information on our patients. We're mining medical records to be able to leverage that information. And we're doing that while combining it with how would we tell the story to the patient? How do we get the patient involved with their healthcare and really share with them this latest information about new medications or new treatments that are available for their concerns? So I think it's it's kind of exciting to think about we're not just applying information exchange, but we're talking about strategy development and we're helping the provider in that role. Okay, that's that, that sounds awesome. So a good high level overview of what 
the goal is for academic detailers. So uh, Amy, transitioning to you, tell us what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, so yeah, Melissa did a great job of describing it broadly. And so when I describe academic detailing to my prescribers and I meet with them, especially for the first time, we talk kind of about what my role is and who I am to them. How, what do I, how, where do I fit in their world? Um, I explain to them that instead of sitting them in an hour-long meeting, watching a PowerPoint presentation in a large room filled with other providers with a topic that may or may not apply directly to their practice. I bring information to them from the National Academic Detailing Office for very specific campaigns that have been identified by the VISN, and I bring them directly to the providers. And we discuss the topic. Uh, we talk about if there's any areas that apply to their practice and maybe areas that don't. And then we spend time identifying those barriers that might keep it make it difficult for them to apply these campaigns in their practice setting? And how do we integrate these things into their clinics and into their routine practice? And if these campaigns really don't apply to them, if we find out during our discussion that there's this just doesn't really directly apply to their practice, then we don't spend more time on it. I try to really keep my meetings with them short. Um, my goal is to never take more than about 20 minutes. I book about a 30-minute block and I hope to talk with them about 20 minutes and allow plenty of time for questions and investigation into other areas where they may have questions as well. And then we move on to the next thing. So really try to get in, keep my relationship with the prescribers on a professional level, knowing that I'm going to bring information. I'm going to, I'm there to support them as they meet the needs of our veterans so that hopefully what I'm providing to them makes their job a little easier. So then when they have time, they can apply those things to their veterans and also make it their job a little easier. So Amy, how has your job responsibilities and process changed since the pandemic? So since my work transitioned to fully online, I really spent a lot of time on email and teams. Um, the National Academic Detailing Program Office really has loads of data and wonderful clinical dashboards that I can use that are available to us. And so I use all this information to identify any providers who may benefit the most from an outreach visit. I send emails, um, I use Teams messaging to coordinate these short 20-minute meetings with our providers and also with their teams and whenever that's appropriate. Sometimes that works and sometimes what we're talking about really doesn't involve the remainder of their team, but a lot of times it does. So I'll try to coordinate and I talk with them individually, not as a group always. Uh, we answer questions that come in from providers. We provide specific VHA directives or memos that support campaigns and key messages. Um, we attend a lot of meetings to identify areas where we can support facility efforts. So what we do not only comes from our national program office and also from the visit as identified campaigns, but we also listen to the needs of our sites and try to really tailor what we're doing to support the needs that each of these sites have and as they express needs for their individual uh, facilities. And then we create campaign materials as well. So sometimes we need something that's very specific for our site. So we'll create those campaign materials and our educational tools that we can use during our outreach visits. Um, I work in really close collaboration with my team so that we can consistently provide consistent information across our visits so that we know that what we're getting in Kansas City is the same as what they're getting in St. Louis, is the same as what they're getting in Wichita. So we try to really make sure that we maintain a consistent messaging across the visit. We feel like that's really important that it doesn't feel very region specific. So it strikes me that a lot of different healthcare professionals could do this role. So how does being a pharmacist prepare you for this role? And how does your experience as a pharmacist enhance the position? So I guess we'll start with Melissa. So educational outreach and, and really implementation science are fields that re are required 
in a high reliability organization. I think we have so much information coming out. Think about the pandemic and how much uh, data was being processed in a six-month period, just floods of it coming in. And how do you sort through that information and bring to the top of the practice as it's changing on in, in some cases on a daily basis? How do you make that information known to healthcare teams and how do you get them to use it? Well, pharmacists are lifelong learners. They're always keeping up on the new drugs that are being approved. And, and they really work in health service research and, and look at practice guidelines, and they're helping people optimize treatment as complex medication managers. They know how to use these medications. They know how to use them with, with other treatments, and they're, they're in direct patient care, so they have that advantage of really being able to advance how the team can approach these implementation challenges that they're up against. So I think one of the things is to understand the role of, of the patient on the healthcare team. I think that we need to empower our patients as decision makers and pharmacists are really astute at being able to give them all the information about their treatments, about their options for treatments, giving them that full menu of care. And then after the patient's leaving our hallways, you know, you think about the fact that they're the ones who are managing their condition. So we're often training people in self-management of their conditions. We're training them on those concerns, which if you apply that type of understanding to what we're doing in this role as a healthcare uh, partner in implementation is that when we leave that provider, they're still in charge of their practice, right? They're guiding their way, but we're giving them strategies of how to be successful. We're helping them with problem solving. We're addressing barriers that they're up against that they're going to hit on a regular basis, whether that's a health insurance, not approving a treatment for a patient or them not having access to certain uh, evaluations that they want to have for that patient on a real-time basis. There's, there's strategies that they have to navigate. And so this partnership that pharmacists are developing with the healthcare team is really overcoming that. And it's helping them make the process better for their patients and streamlining it in a process improvement manner. So I think we really have a niche here as pharmacists to excel in implementation science. And I think we are great at data. We're great at looking at the, not only the clinical data, but then looking at the patient outcomes and applying what needs to happen in order to optimize that. What about you, Amy? Yeah, I agree with everything Melissa said. Those are great answer. And, and as a pharmacist, you know, our providers know we come with knowledge and we come with solutions. We're process-oriented people as a collective group, and we understand the balance that's really necessary to keep our veterans at the center of everything that we do. And I think as a clinical pharmacy provider, we are, my experience in direct patient care really helped me connect, helps me connect with my providers and talk through those possible solutions and talk through those barriers and really help them come to um, an area where they really feel like implementation is a real possibility. And then they can easily see outcomes after that implementation, ta implementation takes place. Well, it sounds excellent. And we know not everything is 100% awesome all the time. So what are some of the unique challenges presented in your job? Melissa? So most pharmacists are trained on the clinical data. You know, they, they're knowledge bearers, right? But influencing behaviors is a, it's a different skill. And they really have to acquire that skill as part of implementation and learning how to use data correctly through audit and feedback, you know, not shaming somebody with information, but empowering them with it. 
Uh, you know, psychologists are using behavior change processes all the time, but pharmacists aren't psychologists, right? So how are we taking this profession and giving them a new skill base that they're not only leveraging their own clinical mastery, but they're helping someone else be empowered to apply that information and to really support that implementation approach. So I think there are times where we meet with individuals and their beliefs about you know, what works in their healthcare system can be a real big influencer to whether or not they adopt a new treatment. So they're very comfortable. You know, they were trained to use insulin as a diabetes manager. They know how to adjust it. And then a new drug comes on board with the SGLT2 class. And it's like, well, what's the role does that have? You know, they're skeptical about its utility and whether or not it should be superior to treatments that they're already providing. So you know, you look at that and really understanding the role of these agents and how they've evolved over time um, is part of that recommendation that we're making. But a detailer is going to have to influence that provider's belief system too, right? They're going to have to really work through their concerns, work through the the barriers that patients have to accessing those treatments. Um, so it would it would be easy just to say, here's the data, buy into it, believe it, you know, take it and run with it. But that's not how humans work, right? We, we're we not so easily swayed one way or another. And I think that's part of what this work is about, is making sure that we answer the concerns that the providers have, that the team members have, and that we work through those concerns with them, that we're respectful of their clinical experience, that we're always there to support where they are, but in really with an agenda, like we're trying to get to optimal treatment for patients and we're trying to improve outcomes for our patients. So, you know, that's kind of the the transparency we have to bring into the relationship because otherwise, you know, it, it's not that we're just sharing knowledge for knowledge's sake. We're sharing knowledge to change practice and changing practice on the other side of that is patients get better. And so that's part of the motivation and, and really the genuineness that we bring working with clinicians that they, we develop a trust. So that's not, you know, that's something we have, we have to uh, train individuals in that implementation approach. There has to be integrity in how they conduct their work. And we have to honor that not everybody's there yet, right? That they are, it's a pathway to that learning and applying it in their practice and, and to be respectful of that as well. Amy, challenges for you? Well, like Melissa said, influencing practice change can be very challenging. Often during initial visit, um, when I'm there, they, you know, after I've explained why I'm there, the first question I get a lot of times is what list am I on and how, what do I need to get, do to get off this list? Because it feels punitive. You know, it feels like, oh gosh, they've sent someone to talk to me. And then after we have an opportunity to talk, and although, you know, it can be an effective short-term solution to just say, take, you know, scrub this list. We really know that that's, really not the best way to meet the clinical goal. It's just not sustainable and real change in practice is the most sustainable solution to improving patient care. Um, So working with providers, helping them understand why our key message is important, and then helping them identify and implement solutions within their practice can be very difficult, but it's also incredibly rewarding. Uh, Once we see those practice changes and the provider sees those changes in their patient outcomes, it's an incredibly rewarding outcome. So what have been some of your most interesting projects? We'll start with Melissa. I would say anything um, substance use disorder related with addiction. Uh, I think 
one of the things I'm sure you've seen recently published the increase in overdose deaths that have occurred in the last year during the pandemic. Um, we're in an epidemic in a pandemic, and it's been really challenging to expand treatment for alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, tobacco, marijuana, stimulants are also on the rise in the deaths that we're seeing. And it's an incredible opportunity for pharmacists to be first-line treatment providers of addiction care, um, being able to really see how our profession is transforming in this area and recognizing the immense role that we have to engage patients wherever they are um, to gain access to this and have an open door for that. Um, so being able to expand that has been really amazing. I, I, the work we've done, we recently, VA won the Eisenberg Award for uh, the work we've done with uh, opioid overdose prevention with naloxone distribution. And my good friend and colleague, Elizabeth Oliva, uh, was part of leading some of the work that we've done there. But that, I, it goes to show you pharmacists are at the at the at the point of that, we're we're there making sure that overdose prevention is part of that. And while saving people's lives with naloxone is the first step, getting them into treatment is the next. And that's the part where this last five years with the opioid epidemics, we're doing safer pain prescribing, but we still have a lot of people who haven't access care. So it's been tremendous to try to change clinicians' hearts and minds about whether they're able to be that treatment provider. You know, this has been an area that has been a specialty care area for a long time, but now we realize that's just not possible. We have to have more clinicians offering treatment where they are, whether that's pharmacists or it's people working in primary care and in other mental health locations, maybe even a, in a hepatitis C clinic. Amy, what about interesting projects you've worked on? So one of our first national goals that our team experienced after we really got up and running was increasing facility compliance with prescription drug monitoring program queries and documentation for both new and annual controlled substance prescriptions. Um, they needed an annual, they needed the total increase was at a 30% actual increase. Um, this is a particularly unique challenge in Missouri because we at the time were the only state that did not have a state prescription drug monitoring program. So until legislation was just passed a few, it was just passed a few months ago, uh, we didn't have one. So we currently do have the St. Louis County PDMP, and that covers about 75% of our state. But due to the lack of a state PDMP, many of our providers were not registered. Uh, we really spent a lot of time believing that this just didn't apply to us. We don't have a state PDMP, so they must not be talking to us. Well, we're talking to us. And so my peer in St. Louis and I, we met with and created relationships with the St. Louis PDP program managers and their directors so we could more closely identify issues with providers and delegate applications and then quickly provide solutions back to the applicants. And then also work to expedite approvals and then ultimately increase the number of providers completing PDP queries. Um, so by working as a liaison between VHA, the St. Louis PDMP and the provider or delegate has really been a unique experience and it continues to serve us as our PDMP efforts continue to get broader and our goals get higher. And we really are, are working hard to make sure that our vision 
becomes a real leader in PDMP queries. And so we've we, that's that was one of the very first big goals that we have. Um, and I know that most of my providers think that all I do is PDMP because it feels like what I'm talking to them about all the time. I do assure them that I have other things that we will talk about, but but that has been a really big push and a really great good first start for us is to really create figure out how we make those make those relationships happen. And by by reaching out to our state, reaching all the way through to our down, all the way down to our provider and delegate level has really served us. And and I really feel like um, we're making great strides. Great. So what advice do you have for someone who would be interested in a job like yours? Melissa? Well, I'd probably tell them to join the VA because I love working for the VA. (laughs) But, you know, if that's not in the cards, First, experience um, serving patients and working on a healthcare team is the first place to get started because I think anyone in this role of influencing practice change needs to kind of walk in the shoes of the clinicians that they're working with and to have a clinical practice uh, first and foremost. Um, and then I and I think having a foot in the door, just understanding what's going on with the current practice state is is a good way to kind of keep yourself sharp and keep yourself on top of the topics that you're going to be bringing. Um, it's been exciting to see how our VA program has, has evolved over time. And I work with the National Academic Detailing Resource Center, NARCAD, that HRQ funded um, uh, several years ago to help support standing up new academic detailing programs across the nation. And I think one of the things you, you realize year after year is that this is a lot about public health work. I think pharmacists getting into public health work, improving immunizations, improving women's health, improving health equity. These are all things we're talking about right now. They're huge. They're important. And what it means is practice change for clinicians. It means identifying gaps in the data where we're not getting treatments to where we need to. Um, There's campaigns that I have great passions for that Uh, We continue to want to invest in like weight management and all of the work in congestive heart failure, diabetes, COPD. These are the bread and butter areas where clinicians who are practicing, pharmacists who are practicing are doing complex medication management. The next step is really looking organizationally to be a high reliability organization and to say, how do we get the knowledge to the right place? How do we make sure places where we're not getting that treatment, when we look at what's going on in our healthcare system, that we use pharmacists in these manners with academic detailing and implementation science, that we get people there to help support the transition and to support those practice change. So I think, you know, to prepare for that, if you'd be interested, if someone's interested in a job like that, it's certainly having um, some training in quality improvement and doing work with system redesign. Those are all great strengths. Uh, I think checking out NARCAD is another place because they do training in academic detailing that, that can be made available if you're not working for a program like the VA that has that embedded in our system. Um, and I also think, you know, really when you're doing quality improvement work like you do for joint commission preparation. I mean, these are standard things that pharmacists are involved with. It's just thinking about it a little bit differently when you're focused on one area of uh, performance for the healthcare system at a time and being very strategic about what your outcome objectives are and, and being able to evaluate that. So that that would be where I'd, I'd begin if I was trying to get started all over again. 
Excellent. What advice would you give, Amy? So I think my my experience as a practitioner has really helped me understand the priorities and the barriers my providers and their teams face. So my advice would be to put yourself in as many patient direct patient care roles as you possibly can. Um, having some diversity in experiences is also quite useful, um, from clinical experiences to administrative or policy development. Um, understanding how each of these roles on the care team contributes to the care of the patient will just make your connections and focused outreach efforts in those areas that will really help you have the most impact. So yeah, diversity in your roles, understanding how, where everybody's place is in those roles. Really, it's about making the connection with your provider so that you can have a good, responsible and um, communication with those people that that's based on trust. And so if they understand that you know what they are experiencing as a provider really does go a long way. Great. So Melissa, you've mentioned some of these before, but what are some areas that you've seen VA academic detailing impact quality of care? Well, there's been a lot of work in stewardship. Um, it's really exciting to see what's happened with opioid stewardship, but also antibiotic stewardship. That's been a big area that pharmacists, I think, are evolving, involving their roles, um, not only in inpatient, but in outpatient prescribing of antibiotics. So we think about all the unwanted areas of like fluoroquinolone prescribing that's going on, deprescribing efforts. So thinking about polypharmacy, safety concerns, huge impact on the elderly and vulnerable health populations. I also think optimizing treatment and chronic disease management. So it's been exciting to see the work of diabetes, heart failure, all these new drugs and new data that's coming out and seeing that transition is totally exciting to see. Congestive heart failure is one, but COPD, all these challenges people are having, keeping all these inhalers, you know, straight. It's no joke that patients can't keep it straight and neither can providers, right? So there are people on different things. We're trying to do de-escalation programs, a lot of support there for clinicians and really trying to keep people out of the hospital. And those are the top three that we see in hospitalizations too, diabetes, infections, and in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Those are huge areas of hospitalization. So trying to optimize chronic management of that with primary care is really critical. And it's been exciting to see us go from a lot of the work we've done in mental health in the VA with PTSD and depression, and really to see that evolve into areas where primary care is saying, look, there's so much coming out so fast. How do we find the patients that we need to make transitions on? How do we identify opportunities in our practice? And then there's the places I want to go for the future. You know, I'm going to tell you weight management is on my top of my list because I truly believe we have a nation of people who have opportunities there, not only with behavioral interventions, but we have pharmacology now that really can give people an advantage and improve their overall concerns that are really being impacted by their weight. I also think osteoporosis, gout management. um, There's a lot of places where medication is at the core of how we approach our care, but it's not the only thing. So whole health is something VA is on fire about. And I think this is where pharmacists can get really involved with balancing, you know, that there is medications that can improve care, but there's also a lot of looking at what the patients want to direct their care and using a whole health approach and really changing who we put in the driver's seat 
of their healthcare. So I think seeing us move into whole healthcare as a nation and seeing people kind of step back and say, what is the self-management that I want to do? How do I want my quality of life to be impacted? So it's not just sick management, it's prevention, right? It's also thinking about what our priorities are, putting them first. So I do think those are some of the exciting things we've been working on. And I look forward to where we go in the future because it's too many ideas, to be honest. (laughs) That's a good problem to have. So what do you, Melissa, what do you think may make these positions more common for healthcare systems to invest in as an academic detailing pharmacist? Well, you know, a lot of times you see board certification as one of the pathways people specialize in. I would love to see that for quality improvement work that pharmacists are doing. I think this is something that we've been even exploring is could there be a certificate-based program certification for implementation science of a pharmacist? I think they are doing this work for joint commission. So recognizing that there's a different skill set involved and really helping them identify that and set apart as a a practice area uh, is something that I would love to see happen. And I think it's necessary for every healthcare system. You can't call yourself a high reliability organization and not have this embedded as part of what you're doing with knowledge translation. People need to keep up on the latest literature in order to improve their practice and really investing in that as an infrastructure to say this is the future of where we're going To me, if you have a pharmacist certification, that may be one pathway that we would really invest in. I do think residency training is also part of it. Many of our sites do academic detailing rotation. So I do know that that is part of making sure the future of pharmacists know what this is and how they can apply it in their practice. A lot of pharmacists, pharmacy residents have given great feedback on their experience working with academic detailers. And so I think that's a great part of how we make sure that if this is something that healthcare systems rely upon, that pharmacists are are, are equipped to be able to deliver it. Wow. Well, I've learned a lot during this podcast. So that's really all the time we have today. I want to thank Amy and Melissa for joining us today to discuss academic detailing in the VA. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journeys podcast as we learn about how our members seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.